One of the shows that my daughters and I love to watch together, I have three girls, they're nine, six, and three, and my two oldest girls love to watch this show called American Ninja Warrior. Anybody seen it? American Ninja Warrior. And American Ninja Warrior is basically, it's an obstacle course set up to test a person's strength and endurance and agility and willpower, essentially their, uh, their ability to function like a ninja. And uh, if you're in the back, just, you know, just so you know, you probably can't tell from the back of that picture, it's not me, it's not me. Um, it's someone, it's someone, I could tell some of you in the back were thinking that, but that's not me. My girls love it. Um, they love watching. It's a fun show to watch as a family. But one of the things that my girls love the most about American Ninja Warrior is they love the backstories on the individuals who are competing. So they don't just enjoy the actual obstacle course, which is a lot of fun to watch, but my girls will never let me fast forward past the little 60-second backstory where you learn something about that person's life. And usually it's about how they have overcome something really tremendous in their lives, whether it's some sort of disease or sickness or the loss of a loved one. And they love watching those stories because those stories actually change the way you watch the rest of the show, right? You're more invested in the outcome of the obstacle course once you've learned something about that person's life. Stories have power. Stories have power to move us to move us emotionally, to make us feel something. Some commercials tell stories so well at the end, you can be emotional. Stories have power to motivate us, to make us donate money, to make us do something that we weren't going to do, to make us change our habits. Stories have those sort of powers, even more than statistics. I could give you all sorts of statistics about how important it is to um, not talk on your phone while you're driving, but all I need to do is tell you one story. And that will stick with you more. Stories have the power to move us, to motivate us, but also to, to, to make us. And what I mean is stories have a formative power in our lives. If a story is told often enough and told well enough, it becomes true to the person who's hearing it. So stories have this sort of power in our lives. Jesus was a master communicator, a master teacher, and he told a lot of stories. We call them parables. In fact, there are 46 parables that Jesus tells in the four Gospels, 46 unique parables that he tells in in the four Gospels. Now, granted, not every parable he tells is a full story with plot and character. Some of them are just quick-hitting metaphors. But he tells all of these stories, and Jesus was a great storyteller. Jesus, in, in using parables as a teaching tool, what he did is he talked about things that were common to shed light on things that were uncommon. He spoke about things that were natural, like salt and light and bread and seed and agriculture and money and animals. And he did that to communicate truth about supernatural things. So he talked about the natural to reveal the supernatural, the common to reveal the uncommon. The parables often highlight the difference between how the kingdom of God works and how the kingdom of man works, how things work here and how things work in God's kingdom. And the truth is, that all of these stories are not always easy to understand. We're beginning this morning a four-week series simply called Say What? And we're going to be taking a look at the hard sayings of Jesus. And we're going to start this morning with what I believe is the most confusing parable, the most confusing story Jesus ever told. In fact, one of you, someone in this church, requested this text. 
I would not have picked this one because this was not an easy text to study. This is not an easy text to preach. I would not have chosen this one, but somebody requested it. And so here we are in Luke chapter 16. Now, right before I read the story to you, the story is difficult for the reader for two different reasons. Number one, it's difficult because it's just hard to make sense of. It actually seems like Jesus is condoning something that everywhere else he condemns. And by the way, whenever you seem to see that contradiction in Scripture, the, the majority of evidence has to trump what, whatever you're interpreting in that story. So in this story, it looks like he is condoning dishonest work habits, but he's not. Because we know from the rest of Scripture that he doesn't condone. The Scriptures do not condone dishonesty or unethical work. But it's, so it's, hard, it's hard to make sense of. We're going to do our best this morning to make sense of it. But the second reason why this is so difficult is because once we do make sense of it, the point that Jesus is making here is very hard to embrace, very hard to accept. So number one, it's hard to understand. But number two, once you understand it, it actually gets harder because the point he's making is very difficult to accept and embrace. Let's look at the story in Luke 16. I'm reading to you from the ESV. The scriptures will be on the screen for you if you need them. Luke 16, beginning in verse one, it says that Jesus also said to the disciples, now the word also there ties us back to Luke 15. So this story is kind of on the heels of Luke 15. The last story in Luke 15 is one of his most famous parables. It's the story of the prodigal son or the lost sons. So it's the same setting, same audience. So we know right away it's disciples and Pharisees are listening. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is firing me, he's taking the management away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses." So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. And then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master learns about this, and this is the master's response in verse eight. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now, I'm stopping in the middle of verse 8 for now because this is where the story ends. Everything, from, everything after this is Jesus making uh, sort of commentary and offering insight on the story. But I want to deal with this story first. And, and a quick thought that will really help us before we dive in deep is simply this. Jesus tells this story to offer the audience a point of comparison and a point of contrast. That's very, we're going to misunderstand the story if we don't understand that. Jesus tells this story to his audience to offer them both a point of comparison and a point of contrast. Be like him in this way. Don't be like him in this way. It's both. So here's a couple quick examples. He's saying to them, you also are a manager. You also are a steward of a master's resources, but you serve a different master. You serve a better master. See, compare in contrast, he says, you should, here's another comparison. You should also be wise and shrewd and strategic in how you prepare for your future, just like this guy was. But here's the, here's the contrast. You're of a different kingdom. The kingdom you're in has a radically different set of values, okay? 
So that's just to set us up a little bit. Here's the big idea this morning, and it's on your notes if you have your notes with you. The big idea is simply this, that wise stewardship matters now and then. Wise stewardship, the way we take care of our resources, the way we handle our resources, the way we invest our resources, Jesus is teaching us wise stewardship makes a difference both here and now and there and then, speaking of eternity. So let's, let's, let's look at the, the story. The first point that I want to bring out to you this morning from this story is simply this. Jesus is teaching us that everything you own is on loan. Everything you own is on loan. This man is a manager. Another word is he's a steward. He's basically responsible to manage personnel, property, and finances. If we're talking about a company today, he's a vice president. He's the COO and he's the CFO rolled into one. He's the chief operating officer and he's the chief financial officer rolled into one. And he's handling somebody else's stuff. He's managing it. He's stewarding it. He's a fund manager. He's a property manager. And it says that he mishandles it. It says that the man was wasting his possessions. Now, when someone asks you to manage something for them or to steward something or to watch over something for them, there are both clear expectations and clear limitations, expectations and limitations. Here's what I expect, and here's the line you shouldn't cross because it's not your stuff. It's mine. If I'm house-sitting for one of you and I go over to the house, there's certain expectations. Hey, make sure the doors are locked at night. Turn the front porch light on. Pay attention to the thermostat. Feed the fish. Water the plants. Bring the mail in. Take the trash out. Obviously, I've done this for people before. I got this routine down pretty good. (laughs) Those are expectations, but there's limitations too. If they came back from their trip and they walked in, I'm like, surprise, I redecorated your house for you. <laughs> like, that's not, that's not house sitting. Or surprise, while you were gone, I put your house on the market and it sold. <laughs> when we're watching someone else's stuff, there are both expectations and limitations. Now, in life, we approach and handle things differently based on whether we own them or, we loan, or they're on loan, Right? Some of you actually, there's actually two different categories of people. I've heard some people go, ah, it's not mine, I don't really care. That's one approach to when something's on loan or you're borrowing something. And there's other people, if you're borrowing something from somebody, you're actually more careful with it, right? Because you know it's not yours. You're two different types of people. You should know who that is, by the way, before you start loaning your stuff out. (laughs) In our society, especially in this American society, it's very easy to think everything that I own, I own. I earn this life. I earned this money, I earned this career, I earned my family, I earned this respectability, I earned this standing in the community, I earned the ability to shop where I shop, to eat where I eat, to do what I do. I'm a self-made woman, I'm a self-made man, I own it. And this story, in this story, Jesus first and foremost is confronting us with the truth that we probably don't want to hear this morning, which is everything you own is on loan. The parable is primarily about wise stewardship. What are you doing with what you've been given? And let's follow up with this question. What have you been given? Everything. Jesus really drives home the fact that this is about stewardship in some of his comments later. Let's jump ahead to verse 10. Jesus commenting on the story, he says this, the one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. He's saying if you're a steward with the little that you have, you can be trusted with more. And the one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, which really means untrue wealth, 
Who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, you will give, who will give you that which is your own? So what are we stewards of? What do we think we own that Jesus is saying it's really on loan? Let me give you some thoughts. Our, our bodies. We're stewards of our bodies. And I'm, you know, I try to remind myself of that when I see a big piece of cake in front of me at 10 o'clock at night. I'm, a re, I'm responsible. I'm, I'm a, God has given me this, this, this body, and I'm stewarding it. I don't, I, you can save your comments on how good of a job I'm doing, but I'm, I'm, stu, I'm stewarding it. And uh, God will convict me of it through this message. We, we steward our minds. This is why we learn, and we go to school, and we educate ourselves. Because God gave you your mind. So we, we're, we're stewards. We're stewards of our time. There's two things you'll never get back. Your time and your words. Can't ever get them back. You steward your time. Every moment that goes by, Aaron and I have been even talking recently, it's very easy to come home after a long day of work, have a nice dinner, get the kids to bed. And really, what do you want to do? You want to veg, right? Maybe just me. Like, you just want to sit on the couch and you want to watch American Ninja Warrior, right? Like, you just want to veg. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. But we were talking recently about maybe we need to start setting aside certain nights where we're going to read instead of watch, we're going to do this instead of that. Because every three hours at night that you sit there, you're stewarding it. You think you own it. It's on loan. You're a manager of that time. We're managers of our families, our relationships, every conversation you have, every interaction, our opportunities, whether it's where you work or the recreation that you enjoy, our possessions, our, the land that we own, the homes that we own, the cars that we own, our natural gifts, our talents and our abilities, even your spiritual gifts that God has placed in you, you're stewarding them. You don't own them. They're on loan. In 1 Peter, Peter writes this in verse four, or chapter 4, verses 10 to 12. I'll read to you verse 10. It'll be on the screen. Peter says, As each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. We're not going to keep reading, but then he goes on to talk about, he, he clarifies that these are spiritual gifts because he talks about speaking oracles and prophetic utterances and that sort of stuff. And what he's saying here is that you've received a spiritual gift, use it to serve one another because you're just stewarding God's grace at work in your life. And here's essentially what Peter is saying. He's saying, I don't care how spiritual your gift is. I don't care how spectacular your gift is. If you're not using it to serve others, you're not stewarding it properly. So we're the stewards of these different things. And of course, there is one more thing that we are stewards of. And this is the primary emphasis of this story. We are stewards of finances. We are stewards and managers of money. Now, maybe if you're visiting, you're thinking at this point, of course, money. Coming to a church and I'm going to hear about money. It's churches always are talking about Money. Well, first off, let me remind you, I didn't choose this text. Did I say that already? I didn't, I didn't, I didn't choose this text. <laughs> Secondly, let me say this, and this is just a gentle warning. Your gut reaction to someone talking about money, especially your money, is one of the clearest indicators of how much power money actually has over you. When you heard I was talking about money, what was your gut reaction? Whatever it was, it's a dead giveaway as to how much power money actually has over you. But also, don't forget, the point Jesus is making here is that everything you own is on loan, even your money. And some people say, not my money, I earned it. I work hard. And some of you I know work very, very hard for the paychecks that you receive. But you earn the money using what? 
using, first off, the fact that you exist and have life. Hard to make money if you don't exist. Why do you exist? Why do you have life? Because you were conceived in the mind of God before you were conceived in the womb of your mother. So we're here because of God. Using what? Your brain. Well, who, get, who, who, who shaped that brain? Who, who touched that brain? Who gave you that ability? Using your skills. With, who gave you those abilities to do those things? The muscles, your education. Who positioned you for that? Your place in history, your place in this world. I don't care how hard you work and how talented you are. Some of you have been born into places in America where you have major advantages over people who were born in the 1600s in some other continent. They were a harder worker than you, but you got it better. Why? Because simply because the grace of God, simply because of his sovereignty. Seemingly um, insignificant circumstances can change the course of our lives and the opportunities we have. Even something as seemingly insignificant as the month in which you are born. There's a great book I read a few years ago called Outliers by a man named Malcolm Gladwell. And in it, he dispels the myth of really the self-made success and the lone ranger genius. The idea that people who are brilliant are brilliant on their own and they just rise to the top all by themselves. And he tells story after story which says it's never somebody on their own. It's always a, it's always a bunch of people, a, a bunch of factors, a bunch of circumstances, things that are beyond our control. And one of the examples that he gives is actually about hockey. I thought this was interesting. I'll read this to you, this paragraph. This is actually from an interview he did with ESPN. But he said, in Canada, the eligibility cutoff for age class hockey programs is January 1st. Canada also takes hockey really seriously. So coaches start streaming the best hockey players into the elite programs where they get to practice more and play more games and they get better coaching and more attention as early as the ages of eight years old. Well, who tends to be the best player at the age of eight? Well, it's the oldest, of course. The kids who were born nearest the cutoff date who are 10 or 11 months older than the other eight years olds. When you're eight years old, 10 or 11 extra months of maturity means a lot. So those kids get special attention. They get put on the elite traveling teams. They get the better coaches. The result, there are more players in the NHL born in January, February, and March than any other months. NHL is the National Hockey League. So he studied this out. The professionals... The best hockey players in the world, if you look at the months in which they were born, it shows that it's an advantage to be born in January, February, and March. So if your mom was due on December 25th and she went a week late and you were born on January 1st, that could be the difference between you being a professional hockey player and not being one. How crazy is that? I say that to say this. We're all benefactors of God's gifts and grace and his sovereignty, even in where we were born and when we were born. James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift comes from above. So everything you own is on loan. You are managing someone else's resources. I know this flies in the face of what you're going to be told everywhere else, but this is what Jesus is teaching us here. Remember, I said it's hard to embrace. This is what he's saying. You're managing someone else's stuff. And that someone else, by the way, is God. The second thing I want to draw out of this story is this idea. When you know what is coming then, quote unquote then, you will change how you live now. Okay? When you know what is coming, quote unquote then, you will change how you live, quote unquote, now. In 1993, there was a movie that came out called Groundhog Day. 
And uh, it was a kind of a classic comedy. In Groundhog Day, there's a character, a weatherman named Phil, played by Bill Murray. And he's covering the annual emergence of the groundhog from its hole. And he gets caught in a blizzard that he didn't predict. And he finds himself trapped in a time warp. And he keeps waking up over and over the same day. And he's doomed to live out the same day over and over and over until he gets it right. And eventually, by the end of the movie, spoiler alert, but it's so old, if you haven't seen it by now, I don't know what to say. (laughs) Spoiler alert, he gets it right. But you know what? He knows what's coming. And by the end of the movie, he anticipates everything that's happening. He doesn't, I, I, I haven't seen it in a long time, but I feel like there's, there's a scene where there's a puddle that he steps in the first couple of days, but then he realizes by the third and fourth and fifth and sixth day, it's going to be there. And then he goes around it, right? Because when you know what's coming then, it changes how you live now. Now, this manager in this story, he saw what was coming. His manager said to him, you're done. I'm firing you. But he didn't fire him on the spot. He said, I'm firing you. You got a little bit of time. Clean up your accounts and you're done. He basically gave him like a week or two. And the manager says, I'll never get hired again in this business. My reputation is ruined. I don't have the muscles or the strength or the youth to do manual labor. I don't have any friends. And the reason he probably didn't have any friends was because of the job that he was working and how he, how he potentially treated people. I don't even have a place to go. So he, he can see the writing on the wall. This is coming. And it changes how he lives. The manager begins to work the system, doesn't he? He goes up to people who owed money to his boss, people that had made investments or that his boss had made investments into. And he says, let me see what your bill is. And he begins to significantly reduce their bill. Why? Simply to leverage that for friendship. So that when he does get fired, because he knows it's coming, he'll have all these people who are like, I actually like this guy now. He, he lowered my bill. You know, some people read this story, and I, I read a bunch of commentaries on this. Some people say maybe he removed, maybe he was putting exorbitant fees on top of the master's fees, and maybe that's what he removed. Maybe he removed his cut. Maybe he took out the interest. Maybe he did it. We don't really know. It doesn't say here. It's possible. But even if he did or if he didn't, the next part of the story is very striking. It says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. So the master hears about this and says, well done. Pretty smart. Essentially what he's saying is, I respect that move. If I was you, I would have done the same. It's, it's weird, but it's like this mutual respect for somebody who kind of just defeated you. I was thinking about this. This is going to be another hockey example, which is weird. I don't even really like hockey. I never talk about hockey. But I was thinking about this. Hockey is the only uh, professional sport, team sport, where when the finals ends, within minutes, do you know what they do? Both teams line up, and they shake hands. There's no other professional sport that that happens in. Think about it. The end, of the end of the NBA playoffs, they don't all line up and shake hands. End of the World Series, you might see a few people shaking hands, but it's not a whole team thing. End of the Super Bowl, it doesn't happen. But in the NHL, after seven games of beating the tar out of each other and literally sometimes fighting each other, they line up and one at a time, they look each other in the eye and they shake hands and they congratulate the team that won. Essentially what they're doing is they're saying, I respect you. Yeah, you beat me, but I respect it. And that's what's happening here. The master is saying to the manager, yeah, you, you were dishonest and you beat me but I respect it. It actually was really, really smart. That's, that's what's happening here. And Jesus, after the story, Jesus 
adds two statements, which actually confuses the story even more, if I'm being honest. I want to show them to you. The first one is in the second half of verse 8. Jesus says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So Jesus is making a comparison here. He's saying the sons of the world are more shrewd than the sons of the light, than the people of God, than the people of the kingdom. Here's what he's saying. This is going to help us. Jesus is basically saying, look at this manager. Look what he did. And here's what he's saying. This is a comparison and a contrast. The people of this world, they understand how this kingdom works better than the people of God understand how God's kingdom works. That's what he's saying. The people of this world understand the kingdom of this world, how it works and its values better than the kingdom of God, sorry, better than the children of God understand his kingdom, how it works and its values. And they invest their money and they work the system to secure a temporary home and temporary future for themselves. That's what he really was doing, was trying to secure friendship so he wouldn't be out on the street, so he'd have a place to go. Whereas God's people, Jesus is saying, should invest their money in a similar way, but in a different kingdom. Similar in that they're shrewd, strategic, and aware of what's coming. We should know what's coming. And when you know what's coming then, it changes how you live now. You should live now and use your master's resources now fully aware of what's coming. That's what Jesus is saying here. And then he goes on to say this in verse 9, and this is maybe the most confusing verse in the story or in the passage. He says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Is that a weird verse or what? Make friends by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails you, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. What's going to really help us with this verse is understanding the phrase unrighteous wealth. Um, When we hear unrighteous wealth, well, first off, it means a couple things. It means this. Wealth can be accumulated the wrong way, right? for the wrong reasons and with the wrong result. That's just the nature of money, right? You can get it in the wrong way, you can get it for the wrong reasons, and it can actually ruin you. It can have the wrong results. But what Jesus is saying here when he says unrighteous wealth, he's actually speaking about the nature of wealth. That's an adjective describing the word wealth. He's describing the nature of worldly wealth. And an author, preacher, pastor named Matt Chandler, uh, and also I studying in the Gospel Transformation Study Bible, they both said this. They said one of the better ways to understand the word unrighteous there, unrighteous wealth, is that it's untrue wealth. Untrue. And we know that because later, and I already read it, he actually makes the comparison between unrighteous wealth and true riches. So the direct comparison is untrue wealth, untrue riches, and true riches. And here's what, here's what Jesus is trying to say when he says untrue wealth. He's saying it's not dependable. It's not the true treasure in this life. And you notice that he says so that when it fails, not if it fails, when it fails. He's saying all the things in this world that you wrap your heart around, all the things that you treasure, finances and property and, and security and all these sort of uh, you know, retirement account. Uh, use wisdom. You should have all of those things if you have the money to do it. You should have a retirement account. You should. So I'm not saying be unwise. But Jesus is essentially saying it's just not true riches. There are true riches, and it's not that. And it will fail you someday. You can't, you know, the pharaohs used to try and take all their wealth to the next life with them by putting all this stuff, you know, into the pyramids with them and burying them with them. You're not going to bring a single dime that you own into the next life. You just aren't. It's not true. It will fail you eventually. It may fail you in this earth. Some people die rich and it seems to never fail them. 
There are other ways in which it has actually failed them on this earth, but it ultimately will fail them in the next life because there's no, you, don't walk, you, don't, you don't walk in and pay your, pay your way in. This is, there, there's untrue treasure. And then he says to make friends. Use your generosity, essentially saying, be generous with your master's resources to make friends. And all this simply means is, when you think of the phrase make friends, it means what? That previously they were not your friend. And Jesus is simply saying here, be generous to people who it wouldn't be obvious to be generous to. Be generous to people who aren't like you, who don't like you, who you don't have things in common with. So Jesus is simply saying here, be generous towards people who you are not friends with. That is the mark of true generosity, by the way, not just giving to people who are like you. And in doing so, turn your very strangers, turn these strangers into your friends. And then Jesus in this verse goes on to make it clear that there are eternal implications And what I love about this language here is that when Jesus talks about heaven, he uses words like friends, which are people with which you belong, and home, which is a place in which you belong. So Jesus is is painting a picture of heaven here for us as saying, in heaven, there will be people with which you belong and a place in which you belong. And here's what Jesus is saying, that's the true treasure. That's the true treasure. So spend the untrue treasure on earth now in a way that is done in light with the true treasure that's coming to you. That's what Jesus is saying. When you see the true treasure that's yours in heaven, people with which you belong, a place in which you belong, then you're not gonna leverage untrue treasure on this side of eternity to try to get the things that are yours anyway. Does that make sense? That's that's essentially what Jesus is saying here. And I, I listened to Tim Keller preach on this story, and he quoted a guy named Michael Wilcock who wrote a commentary on Luke. And here's what... This is not long, so listen carefully. Here's what he says. Here's the point of the parable. This is what Michael Wilcox says. Keller just was quoting him. Although these things, like your property, your abilities, and time, belong to this life only, what will happen to you then when you pass into the afterlife will depend on what you are doing with them here and now. Make sure that your use of money brings you, I love this phrase, make sure that your use of money brings you into a fellowship of friends that will survive beyond death. Make sure that your use of money here and now brings you into a fellowship of friends, a community of people, a family, a church that will survive beyond death. Invest your master's money now in a way that will mean something then. That's the simplest way I can say it. Invest your master's money now in a way that will mean something then. When I talk about then, you know, I'm not just talking about the future here. I'm talking about eternity then. So in summary, Jesus is saying Christians should be generous with their master's money, which is not theirs to begin with. We've already said that. Everything you own is on loan. But it's also not the true treasure it appears to be then this generosity should be expressed towards people that are not like them. And then Jesus says, the result will be the gift of eternal friendship and an eternal dwelling place, both for the person who is generous and the person who receives the act of generosity. That's, that's a profound. That's saying, a, Jesus is making a really radical statement here. He's saying that your generosity is connected to your eternal dwelling, but also can have an impact on the people who receive your generosity that your generosity can actually change someone else's life. In the well-known story of Les Miserables, beginning, it begins in 1815, and there's a peasant named Jean Valjean, and he was just released from 19 years of imprisonment. 
He's, he's coming through a town, and he's turned away by every innkeeper in town because he has a passport that's marked in a way that says he's a former convict. No one will take him in. And so he begins to sleep out on the street. He's angry, and he's bitter about it. He's thinking, I served my 19 years, and this is going to haunt me the rest of my life. A kind old man, Bishop Muriel, gives him shelter. And that very night, Valjean strikes Muriel. He runs off of the bishop's valuable silverware. When the police capture Valjean the next day, they bring him back to face his victim. And Muriel pretends that he had given the silverware to Valjean. And he says, Valjean, what's wrong with you? I meant you were supposed to take these two silver candlesticks as well. And you forgot them. So he presses him to take the two candlesticks as if he had forgotten to take them. The police accept his explanation and they leave. And then in a really poignant moment in the film, Muriel tells Valjean that his life has been spared by God and for God and that he should now use money from the silver candlesticks to make an honest man of himself. And he does, if you know the rest of the story. One act of unexpected generosity changed this man's life forever. Now, I know this is a story, but this is true in life, too. And it's true in Scripture. In fact, Paul says this exactly. We're not going to read it, but in 2 Corinthians, if you want to read it later, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 12 to 14, he says, when you're radically generous, two things result, always. Number one, the needs of people are met, and they will glorify and worship God. That's what Paul says. When you're radically generous, people's needs are met, and they will begin to adore and worship God. I say it this way, filled stomachs and filled hearts. Their stomachs will be full, and their hearts will be full. When you know what is coming then, you will change how you live now. Okay, last point from this story. So, so far we've learned everything you own is on loan. When you know what is coming then, you will change how you live now. And this last one is simply this. There are many matters, but there's one master. This is what Jesus is saying. There are many matters, but one master. Many things matter. Many things are important, but there can only be one master. Jesus' final words on this parable are very well known. You, be, you maybe didn't realize that this is where Jesus said this. But in verse 13, Jesus says this. No servant can serve two masters. For either he or she will hate the one and love the other, or he or she will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Here's Jesus' summary statement on this whole story. You're going to have a master, but you're only going to have one. You can't serve both. The throne of your heart is a one-seater. It's not a two-seater. It's a one-seater. It's for one. It's going to be God or it's going to be something else, God or money. And then in verse 14, we, we see that the Pharisees who were listening, they were lovers of money. They heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Which, by the way, anytime you talk about money, if, if there's a lover of money, they'll walk away ridiculing what they just heard. It just, that's, that's the result. They'll dismiss it. You'll, you won't even be two feet out the doors where you'll immediately be like, that was good for someone else, but not good for me. So be careful as we process this. Now, the ESV study Bible points out something really interesting here. Jesus does not say that, that no servant should, or you should not serve two masters. Don't do it. It's not a good idea. Jesus says it's impossible. You cannot serve two masters. Those who are Jesus' true disciples have to make an either-or choice. It's not both and. It's not God and money. It's either or between serving God and serving money. And the reason why is because money can become a God. Money can take an idolatrous place in one's life. And even if you say, I don't care that much about money, I just use it so that I can get this. And as long as I have this, then it doesn't matter how much money I have. Well, that this, that thing that you have to have that you use money to get, that maybe is your God. 
and you're just using money to get your God. So you maybe say, I don't really, I'm not greedy. I don't really want to be wealthy. I don't care that much about it. As long as I have enough money for this, well, be careful because you st- it still has power over you. The way to serve God rather than money, the ESV Study Bible says, is to put one's resources to the service of others and the work of the kingdom. Now, everyone serves a master. You've heard me say that a lot. Everyone, everyone has a master in their life. There is something or someone controlling and compelling every single person. And whatever you allow to become your master, it owns you. It controls you. It enslaves you. In a God-like way, here's what it becomes. Uh, here's a few things. It becomes the center of your life. It becomes the focus of your life's work. It becomes the object of your daydreams. It becomes the recipient of the costly sacrifices that you make to have it or obtain it or sustain it or maintain it. It becomes the source of your mental and emotional well-being. Mentally and emotionally, you are not well when it's under threat and you don't have it near. It becomes the joy that you pursue, the vision of the good life that you are aiming for. It becomes the God that you worship. And money can become all of those things. And Jesus is warning us here, it'll master you. It'll own you. It'll enslave you. And you'll never see it coming. Just four chapters earlier in Luke 12, he actually says, be on guard and watch out for all kinds of what? Greed. He doesn't say, watch out for anger. You won't see it coming. You know, watch out for lust. You'll never see it coming. He says, watch out for greed. You'll never see it coming. One of the, I think what Jesus is saying is one of the signs that greed might be an issue for you is that you're certain that it isn't one. So watch out for it. Be on guard against it. Some people say, well, okay, so I've heard this before. I've been in church long enough. The church needs me to give my money. The church needs me to give my money away. And the church does have needs, of course. But here's what I'm trying to say. It's not that the church needs you to give your money away. You need you to give your money away. You need it more than the church needs it. You need to give your money away more than the church needs your money. Why? Because the more you have of money, the more it has of you. And the more you hold on to your money, the stronger its hold is on you. It has, it has the power to become the promise of significance and security, but it can never deliver it. I mean, maybe you've heard me say this before. Some people use money for significance, and they tend to be spenders. I'm in that category. <laughs> Some people tend to use money for security, and they're more savers. And that's more my wife. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but many of you married someone who's the opposite of you. It's a constant source of sanctification in, your, in, each, in, each, other's, in each other's lives. Spenders marry savers. It just, it just sort of happens. And they both look at each other like, what's wrong with you? You don't handle your money right. Your money is an issue for you. But the problem is, is they, they, they possibly both have made money into an idol, but in two totally different ways. One uses money to feel significant because they can drive certain cars and live in certain places and afford to eat in certain places. And then other people use money because that's how they feel like they're secure in this world. And in both cases, they're looking to money to do for them what only Christ can ultimately do for them, both here and there, both now and then. You need you to give your money away. I'm just saying, it's, it's, it's for you. It's good for your heart and for your well-being. Money, if it's your master, it will require everything of you. It will. You will lay everything and anything on the altar. I know people that lay their, fa- uh, they lay their family on the altar for money. They have almost no relationship with their family because they're pursuing money. You'll lay your integrity on the altar for money. You'll lay your physical well-being on the altar for money. If money's your master, you'll lay everything and anything on the altar and attempt to get the money, which, by the way, remember what Jesus said, it's untrue treasure, 
when what we really desire, eternal friendship and eternal home, the true treasure, is actually found in giving your money away. It's, it's so counterintuitive. And that's what Jesus is saying here. It's found in living generously. Money as your master will ruin you both here and now, and it will ruin you there and then. And so in closing, what you and I need is a better master. Now, how do we exchange the master of money for Jesus? How do we do it? I'll tell you how you don't do it. It's not just determination and effort. It's not just you kind of saying, I'm gonna do better now. It's gotta be something else. You actually have to have your heart changed and shaped. Three chapters later, we, we meet a man named Zacchaeus. I'm not gonna go through his whole story. Zacchaeus is familiar. If you grew up in church, you sang songs about him being a wee little man, poor guy. Uh, Zacchaeus was a short little guy and Jesus was rolling through town and so Zacchaeus climbs up a tree so that Jesus can, so he can see Jesus. Now Zacchaeus actually was probably a lot like this, the manager in this story. He worked for the Romans he was a tax collector of sorts, and he was putting fees on top of the taxes. So let's say that you owe $1,000 in taxes. Well, the tax collector comes and says, you owe $1,500 because he's going to skim off the top $500. And this is what Zacchaeus is doing. So everybody hates Zacchaeus. Nobody likes Zacchaeus. Nobody wants to be seen with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is the exact sort of person that you don't want to be friends with. And Jesus comes walking by, and Zacchaeus, and Jesus stops under the tree, and he looks up at Zacchaeus and says, Zacchaeus, hey, come on down. I'm coming to your house today for a meal. Now, he didn't just do that because he knew Zacchaeus had the money to provide a good meal and he had a special chef waiting for him to make something tasty. When you said, I'm going to your house in that culture, it was, we're friends. That was a genuine sign of friendship. I'll sit at your table and I'll have fellowship with you. So Jesus walks by and says, hey, Zacchaeus, come on down. I'm offering you friendship. Zacchaeus never expected that. They go to his house it never ever tells, it never says in the story that Jesus browbeated him about his thief, about his, about his stealing, sorry, about his, about his thievery. It never says that Jesus pointed it out. It simply says that Jesus extended friendship to him. And what happens? Zacchaeus says, I'm gonna give half my stuff away to the poor. And if I stole anything from you, $500 from Mac, I'm gonna give him four times back, $2,000 back. That wasn't required. That wasn't the law. That wasn't a restitution that anybody, any law on that day would have required him to make because when you've encountered Jesus' friendship, the grace of God, it makes you radically generous. You don't have to be told to give your money away. And I'm not just talking about, we're not just talking about giving your money away, right? It's about being generous with your time, being with, spending time with people who can't do anything for you, so to speak. It's about being generous with your home, opening up your doors and being hospitable. It's about being generous relationally, being patient with people who test the limits of your patience. It's, talk, it's about being generous with lots of things, not just finances, but radical change. We see this radical change in Zacchaeus once he experiences Jesus' generosity and friendship. And the same is true for us, but even more so, even more so. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul says this, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's a, that's a mouthful, but what Paul is basically saying is Jesus who had the riches of God's glory and heaven and the eternal friendship of the Trinity, he walked away from all of it and became human, human to the point of a servant, to the servant point of death, to the point of death on a cross, the death of a criminal. Jesus became poor in your place so that through his poverty, you can be made rich. But through his death on your behalf, you can have 
true riches. Not untrue riches, but true riches. Jesus didn't just look up a tree and see you and offer you an afternoon of friendship. Jesus hung on a tree thinking of you to offer you forever friendship. We have so much more than even Zacchaeus had. And so you know what it does? When, if we believe it's true, here's what it does. Two things. It opens, our, it opens up our hearts and opens up our hands. And we just give. The shrewd manager was generous with his master's money in an attempt to secure friendship and a future for himself. But Christians are generous with their master's money because the greatest friendship and the greatest future has already been secured for them by Jesus. Now remember when we started, I said the story is hard for two reasons. Number one, because it's hard to make sense of, and I've done my best. I've done my best. It's not an easy story. But secondly, because once you make sense of it, the point that Jesus is making here is tremendously hard to accept and embrace. And some of you this morning have felt that tension inside of you, that this is hard teaching. I think that's why Jesus buried this in a story, because this is a hard teaching. This is hard to accept and embrace. And I don't expect you to just believe it because of what I've said this morning. But what I would ask you is to allow God's spirit to speak to your heart. How is he asking you to be generous? And right before we close in prayer, what's the next step that someone could take this morning? You know, in the Old Testament, they talk about giving God the tithe, which is 10% of everything you own. Now, if you're new to church and if you've not grown up around this, 10% of what you own, giving it to the church, that's crazy talk. That's a lot of money, right? I mean, some of you could not continue to live the life you're living if you gave away 10% of your money. And I understand that. And then some people say, well, that was the Old Testament. The New Testament doesn't really uh, support the tithe. We could have that conversation. Uh, I think it's not explicit, but I think it's implicit. But even if it's not in the New Testament, let me ask you this question. Is more or less expected of Christians on this side of the cross? Do we have more of God's grace than the Old Testament or less? Do we better understand more of his goodness towards us or less? So that's fine if you don't like the 10%. The bad news is the standard in the New Testament is maybe it's not the tithe, it's the cross. It's everything. And so, but for some of you, I realize it's just not like, by the way, if you're married, don't make a decision about this without talking to each other either. That's a bad idea. If one of you is on board and the other one's not, you gotta figure that out. So maybe if you don't give anything, 10% is a very unrealistic jump for you. But what's your next step? Two things. It's not going to happen overnight. You're not going to go from 0% to 10% overnight, most likely. If you can and God wants you to, then do it. I'm not saying don't do it, but many people can't. It won't happen overnight, but here's the other thing. It won't happen on accident. What's your next step? If you're giving nothing, then on a regular basis, what can you give? And how can you work towards whatever God's put on your heart to give? What's your next step? If you're giving 5%, well, maybe you should be praying about what, it, what will it take for me? How will I have to change my life to give 7%? and move in the right direction. So it's not an overnight change, but it's also not an accidental change. You gotta make a decision. You have to do something. And, and I say this at the very end of the message because the last thing I want you to think is that generosity is simply about the dollar amount. You can give your money away and not be generous. Amy Carmichael, a famous missionary to India said this, you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. You can give without loving. Some people give because they think if they give, God will keep them safe and protect them and protect their family. You're giving to yourself. You're not giving to him. So it's not just about putting money in. It's about having a heart that's changed 
because it's seen the friendship and the grace that Jesus offers to us. True treasure. Let's pray together this morning.